365 Conversations, episode number 30. Welcome to 365 Conversations. I'm your host, Chris Loach. Today, my guest is Joel Hostler, and he is the former lead singer of the band Noise Ratchet. If you've never heard of him before, you should check out the links in the show notes. They're at 365conversations.com slash episode 30. It was great to get to know Joel and hear a bunch of his story and hear all about Noise Ratchet and kind of how they took off and then what ended up happening with them and how that led to where he is today at a church in Southern California. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. Again, all the show notes are at 365conversations.com slash episode 30. All right. Well, I'm here with my guest today, Joel Hostler, and he was formerly of a band called Noise Ratchet, and he's currently a worship pastor in Southern California. And I'm excited to talk to Joel today. So Joel, thanks for hanging out. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. So uh, one of my first guests, his name was uh, Nick Departy, and he was in a band called Cutlass. And Nick and I met, it was about 10 years ago at the militia group. He was doing graphic work for them and I interned there for like a week and (laughs) uh, thought I knew everything. And so I I quit and moved back to the Bay Area and started uh, managing some bands because I had so much experience at a record label. Yeah. And so uh, uh, so I was was talking to Nick and and he shared his story and he was saying how he kind of got into music. And one of the things he said was, I was obsessed with this band Noise Ratchet. I was like, yeah, Noise Ratchet, man. I love them too. I wonder I wonder kind of what what happened to them. So I looked you up and found out that you're working at a church. And, and so that's, uh, I don't know if you know Nick at all. I, I remember Nick uh, yeah. a little bit, yeah. I, I mean, it's been <laughs> really, it's been like over 10 years. It's been probably yeah. like 12 years since... I think we played one of our last shows with them, actually. Um, It was somewhere in the Inland Empire here in Southern California at a big festival. Yeah. And I remember playing with them. But that's the last time I remember uh, seeing them. But I do remember Nick. You know, I haven't seen him in a long time, so we talked a long time some. But I do remember him, and I remember the band for sure. So Yeah. So um, where did you kind of grow up? What was kind of your start in music and that kind of thing? Yeah. So, uh, I'm from, I'm originally from Florida. Actually, I was born in Florida, uh, raised in the dirty South, South Carolina. Um, grew up there pretty much in right outside Greenville, South Carolina, um, from five to 19, basically. Um, my influence from music, um, my dad was a pastor of a small church. Uh, but at the same time, he was in a rock band, uh, like an 80s rock band. So nice. Saturday night he was playing at clubs, and then Sunday morning he was preaching. So I grew up in a kind of that, that kind of a home, um, not a traditional church at all. It was a very uh, multicultural, uh, small, probably like 80, you know, 50 to 80 people, just eclectic little funky bunch of people in Greenville. We Our church was in Greenville, South Carolina. So yeah, I, I mean, I played bass on the worship team when I was in high school, you know, with my dad. My dad played, led the worship and preached. And so it was just, uh, that was, I've always been around music. Um, my dad was in a band when he was a kid as well. And he was a youth pastor and a worship. He did worship as well when he was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've always been kind of in the world of music and around music and um, knew a lot of people. My dad knew a lot of people played with uh, Striper and Warren nice. and the Resurrection Band and like Petra, all the old 80s Christian, you know, well, Warrant wasn't, but <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I, that's kind of where I grew up. Um, and then when I was 19, uh, we, I had just graduated actually I was 18, you know, yeah, 18, about 19, I graduated. This is 96, um, 1996. Uh, and my dad was also a guitar repairman. Uh, he ran a little guitar shop or a music shop in, uh, where I grew up in South Carolina and he, uh, got hired on at Taylor guitars out here in Southern California. I was 96. So we, he said, "Hey, we're gonna up and move to California." And I was, I'm a little redneck boy from South Carolina, and uh, I uh, 
you know, I, at first I was a little uh, resistant because I was a pothead skater kind of dude at the same time. So I was like, no, I want to hang out with my friends and stay here. And they uh, said, why don't you come out and try it, you know, for a couple months. If you don't like it, move back. So we moved to, so 96, follow 96, we moved uh, out here to Southern California into San Diego, uh, actually, in the Mesa, East County area, because the uh, shop, the Taylor factory is in East County. And mm. um, started working there at Taylor. So I was, again, around music, you know, around musical instruments and uh, stuff. And um, basically around that time, um, just kind of was trying to find out who I was, you know, I was just graduated from high school and moved across the country to a huge city. And I was a small town boy Yeah, and, um, uh, had some bad experiences, some bad drug experiences with, uh, some guys that were on that what I was working with on the night shift at Taylor at the time. And, um, just kind of God was calling me out of that. And I definitely knew that and could see that. And uh, my parents encouraged me to go to a college group at a church uh, that Bob Taylor, the owner of his family, had invited us. And we'd gone a couple times, but he said, well, my parents just said, why don't you try out the college group? So I went to the college group at that time and uh, actually met our original uh, the original member, uh, Danny, was a guitarist, one of the um, guitarists. Um, and he invited me to a Supertones uh man who was it it was supertones value pack um i'm trying to remember there was a couple other openers that i don't remember who they were at that time yeah i didn't yeah. even know these guys were right. who those bands were at that time uh, invited us to that show and uh, we went and i was like holy crap you know this is amazing at that time you know that right. was the height of that music so um and supertones was i mean that was like right when they were starting and starting to blow up and uh, I kind of rededicated my life through that process, kind of in that place at that church. And um, Danny at the time uh, asked me, hey, it's there's me and this other guy, uh, Rick, that plays drums. He was the original drummer when we were pop punk, Noise Ratchet was like back in the when we first started. And he asked if I would, uh, if I played bass, I think he asked and if I would want to play with him. So I was like, sure, <laughs> why not? <laughs> Um, so I didn't have anything else to do. So I was like, at that time I was literally, I was working night shift at Taylor. I'd, uh, sleep in a little bit, go surfing and then go to work again. So I had no really life at that time. It was just like, and I didn't know, have any friends or anything. So they invited me over. I played bass and I, I had, been playing bass you know uh in high school i played upright bass and stuff and i had played in a couple bands during high school yeah we just started jamming and playing some covers of uh, some mxpx covers and some stuff uh and it just clicked and um we were like okay i guess we're gonna be a band now <laughs> so we uh this it just worked you know uh whenever bands start and it just clicks you just know it you know you yeah. know you you play well together and your personalities fit so we started playing that was not that was january 97 so mm -hmm. i'm literally fall 90 or the like december january i think it was probably january of 97 when we first started playing and so we just started playing practicing writing our own songs in a house uh in San Diego, just in like there was a big rec room, and we just kind of like set up in there and practiced and played. Nobody ever complained, so <laughs> we're like, "All right, we'll just keep doing it." So um, we had our first one of our first shows in the house. Invited just a bunch of friends over. You know, we played with a band called Harvey's Bicycle at the time. They were just a another one of the little, and they they were a little more emo than we were. We were they were into the emo kind of first phases to emo you know yeah. late 90s and we were still pop punk we were still listening to mxpx and dipack and um supertones and all those guys so uh we started pretty much playing a couple we would we would put on a couple of those every once in a while we do uh just kind of house shows and we would just play in uh one day uh one of the shows a couple girls came over and they were like hey we're putting on a uh, charity event 
our fundraising event for our friend that has cancer. And uh, we had they had a couple of dogwood was playing. They were the headliners at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, so we were like, sure, we'll play. So we went, and that was our first pretty much big show. Was with uh, it was uh, uh, dogwood. Um, Sean O'Donnell from Revolver in uh, he played with Yellow Card a little oh yeah first band I mean he's like Stomach Monkeys and um, us and uh, another band the Jason Harper who played in Dogwood later he was in a band I can't remember their name oh something youth i can't remember and it was like four bands it was us and those guys and it was like dogwood was just starting to blow up at the same time too met those guys and uh we're like hooked up and we started playing shows with them so that's pretty much how we started i mean that's the story and then uh pretty much from there um i mean we played uh a couple festivals there was a couple big festivals we played um there was one at san diego state it was Dave Saker and POD headline and Supertones. And then it was us. And then right before us was PAX 217. And then nice. I think there might have been one other opener. Mm-hmm. It was Youth youth Fest or something. I can't, I can't, <laughs> it's been like stinking 15 years from, yeah. from that. So um, that was when we started getting uh, popular, but we were still pop punk at that time. Did you guys like release anything at that point? Yeah, you guys put yeah. out? So, so yeah, at that time when we were at that festival, we had a little tape actually. We had back when cassette discs were out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, CDs were just, were kind of pop, were starting to blow up, but uh, we didn't have any way of duplicating a CD. So we didn't have the money either. So there was this uh, down in uh, North um and uh, I can't remember where it was. It was this little tape store. And we recorded some on like a, a four-track recorder that we had. Nice. And then, my, and then uh, I think we recorded one or two songs. My dad had some recording stuff, and he recorded us. We put it out on, cassette, on a cassette tape and um, sold. I think we bought like 100 of them, and we sold all of them pretty quick. But right after that, we had our drummer – uh, at the time, uh, had some issues with him, um, and, uh, kind of, I don't remember if we kicked him out or what happened. I think we kicked him out and, um, then, uh, we were pretty much without drummer for a while. Um, we had our, a friend band. There was, they were long live or not long logos. There was a band called logos at the time. And a bunch of Mexican kids down from Chula Vista, and uh, their drummer Andrew was amazing. So he would sit in and play shows with us because we had a bunch of shows still scheduled. Yeah, um, playing churches and stuff. And around that time was kind of we started playing uh, one of the shows we played with a band called Peach Fuzz. <laughs> I'm throwing out all these names, these old. <laughs> their name was Peach Fuzz, and their drummer was Brandon, who was eventually our drummer. Um, Norris Ratchet's drummer. Um, they were just a, you know, they're a bunch of like 16 year old kids. We were, me and Danny were in our early 20s, and uh, these like 16, 17 year old kids. And uh, we're like, hey man, um, you want to quit Beach Fuzz and come play for Noise Ratchet? And we were kind of big at the time in, in San Diego within the like little church crowd. You know, we were had like at least like 50, 100 people would come to the shows, you know? Yeah. So he started drumming with us, and at the same time, we were like, why don't we, you know, like, it was basically late 99 at that time, or like middle, mid-99, and um, we're like, why don't, you know, emo was starting to blow up at that time, or starting to get popular, so um, Static Prevails out, Sunny Day Real Estate, you know, all those guys were, those CDs were out, so we were, uh, we were like, let's change our style because pop punk is slowly going the way of the Buffalo. <laughs> but, um, so we, uh, at that time, Brandon had joined the band and it was me and Brandon and Danny. Uh, but literally within like, uh, 
uh, it would all happen within like maybe two or three weeks. Brandon started playing drums for us. And then um, there was another hardcore band down there at the time. And there was a guy named Roger who was eventually our guitar player as well. We asked him if he would come just try out for us or whatever. So he came and the same thing kind of happened. We just, we started jamming on just something. I don't even think we were doing covers. I think we were just kind of jamming on one of our songs and uh, Roger came play guitar and I was playing bass still at the time. And we started kind of, it was kind of like a big transition point when we were going from the pop punk, we were still kind of playing a little bit of the pop punk songs for like literally, but it was real short. It was like about two months and Danny and, uh, or Roger Brandon and I, uh, had talked, um, separate from Danny and we were like, why don't we, they, or Brandon and Roger said, why aren't you singing lead? Why don't you sing lead? Cause I was singing backup harmonies at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started singing lead and playing bass, uh, lead vocals and playing bass and Danny played guitar, Roger played guitar and Brandon was on drums. So that's when we started writing pretty much from then on, we started writing our first, uh, album, which was, well, it's an EP. It was called why we cry totally you know yeah i remember um, it. um so we had written that album and uh we recorded at double time studios in east county it was where um uh, blink 182 treasure cat was recorded um oh. later azalea dying some other stuff was recorded there um because that was like why we cry came up and like Basically, that blew up. We started playing this little coffee shop in, uh, in I can't remember exactly. It was off 30th, right near downtown. And it was in a church, but it was down in their basement. They had this room set up like a coffee shop. And literally, we played there. And we turned into kind of the house band. Like, we'd play there like once a month. And like eventually, it just started growing and growing and growing. We'd played all those songs from the Why We Cry. We just had like, you know, six songs and we'd just play them over and over again. <laughs> but kids just started coming. And it was like eventually, literally got to the point where it was like, we cannot fit any more people in this basement. It was like 150 degrees down there by sweating and like, you know, singing the songs uh moshing you know it was just like that was it and uh, so we pretty much from then we started to get after why we cry came out we started to get um pretty popular in the san diego scene of course um we started touring i think a little bit after that our first tour was with actually with dogwood we did a little week stunt with them it was a short one but we did a did like Phoenix and a couple other places in like a, I had a, <laughs> I had a Ford panel van, like a Ford, uh, Aerostar, yeah. right. Or it was a panel van and we had this little junky trailer, uh, trailer we had bought from a band called third root. I don't know if you remember third root at all. They were kind of be PODs, little brothers. Uh, yeah. And, uh, they had sold us their little trailer. So we loaded it up and, toured um and then pretty much from there it just went on we toured with cool hand luke uh was our first major tour went out for two months with them and played cornerstone um this is all 2000 uh summer 2000 yeah i think it was um and chad <laughs> chad was with us on tour from militia group he was uh because he was he started out booking bands right yeah. and he yeah. i remember him because my my buddy put on a, a bunch of shows and i helped him do that and i remember when the militia group first started and he was booking like slick shoes and a few other bands and i i don't remember if it was a rocket summer or Lindsay diaries one of them but he was like on tour with them he's like oh yeah, yeah. i'm i'm touring with them too i, I yeah. remember that yeah he did he did a lot i don't think we hadn't signed to them I think it was around that time when we did sign to them though mm. um him and rory got together but before i can't remember if we signed before we went on tour with cool hand luke or afterwards i think it was afterwards um 
but yeah, he would go, Chad would go out on, he was, I don't remember how we got hooked up with Chad. I think just some mutual friends in the scene and, um, he would just, I think he helped us book a couple shows and then came on tour with us one time and, uh, like literally five, six or at that time it was just five guys in this little, like, it wasn't even a 15 passenger. It was like just a minivan. Yeah. And, uh, just like we like, it was panel man. So there was nothing in the back. So we like took a van seat out of another one, like strapped it down with like bungee cords or something and then just kind of laid on the floor. And nice. it was, uh, those were the early days of, uh, touring. Nobody knows it. Nobody hears about those days, of course. Uh, yeah. Um, Did you guys at that point you were playing with all these like Christian bands Were you guys, I mean, that was, that was the thing in, in Southern California. That was just like that, oh. that period of time where you guys like intentionally wanting to be a quote unquote Christian band or were you like just playing with those bands or how did that kind yeah. of, I think we, I think we originally started out that way, of mm-hmm. course, because that was what was, I mean, we were playing shows, like I said, with, uh, we were even playing even some other smaller shows. I mean, POD was huge yeah. around that time with the Brown album and Dogwood was pretty big in that time. So we played with those two bands quite a bit in the early days. Um, even when, when we were pop punk and then even when we transitioned, uh, and started playing the more emo stuff, um, we were still playing with those bands. So they Dogwood was, I mean, they were both kind of crossover a little bit, you know? So Mm -hmm. we were kind of, at first, I think we probably had an intention when we were pop punk to be in the Christian scene. Uh, we, you know, of course, we wanted to sign with Tooth and Nail, and you know, yeah. every band did. Yeah. And um, but once I think we started transitioning and playing with some other bands, and um, I think once we started playing with some other bands and the Switchfoot guys and stuff, we saw the crossover kind of scene where you know a lot of them were not, you know, they were starting to sign to major labels and uh kind of go another route and so i think that was when early you know early 2000 we're like okay we're in tooth and nail at that time was like christian you know quote unquote but right it was not at the same time yeah. so i think that was that was where every band at that time wanted to be because it was a cool thing so even though there was a christian scene that whole southern california the you know or and well, not just Southern California, but you know that whole tooth and nail scene, early two thousand, late two thousand, late nineties, uh, early two thousand, was just this huge group of bands that wanted to do this crossover. You know, they wanted to cross over from Christian to secular, but have their feet in both worlds, I guess. Right. <laughs> you know, um, so that's that's what we wanted to. Yeah. So we started. Um, let's see here. From that time on uh I, we had signed with the militia group um and we put out our first full length that was till we have faces mm-hmm. and, and that was that like 2002 2000 mm-hmm. i think that was around 2001 2002 i see i can't even remember the days <laughs> when it was released <laughs> when was your cd release i don't remember <laughs> um but yeah it was around that time early 2000s and uh we put out that album and uh that's when we really started doing well, uh, especially in Southern California. Um, but we started to get on some bigger tours. Um, I can't remember who our manager was at that time, but we had a booking agent and a manager at the time. And, and our booking agent was booking a lot of, he was, he represented a lot of bigger bands. Um, so yeah. uh, he got us on some tours. You know, that was when we started touring Dashboard, um, Hot Rod Circuit, and uh, we um, it was a couple other tours. It's, we did a couple bigger tours, some flyout stuff with Switchfoot and stuff when they were blowing up. And then we released our EP. Um, our you know, it was just the Noise Ratchet EP. It was a gold one with the uh, chord kind of stuff on it, and that was the one that had. Um, um, kind of our one of our signature songs, uh, but anyway, so yeah, we around that time was when we started 
you know, we're like, okay, we could do this full time. You know, we're touring with some pretty decent acts, you know. And um, that was when our manager at the time got us uh, hooked up with, uh, or I don't remember he invited, but we had a show at Chain Reaction. And all of a sudden, it literally was in like within a week. It was like we went from just a popular band to all of a sudden we had like Sony and, you know, uh, Columbia and like Atlantic and all these uh, A&R guys were going to be at our show at Chain Reaction. And it was just like all of a sudden overnight, you know, it was literally like within one week it was like, hey, there's this guy coming. And then the next day it was like, hey, there's two more guys coming, you know, and then there's two more guys coming. So we had like six or seven A&R reps at this Chain Reaction show. And um, that was when, I mean, Thursday was starting to blow up. Thrice was starting to blow up. And uh, a couple of them showed interest. I mean, of course, uh, there was a couple that hung around uh, Hollywood Recording Records, which was is Disney's label, yeah. uh, American Recordings, Anthony, who we eventually signed with, and RCA at the time as well. Uh, they all wanted to kind of stick around and talk to us still, because all the other all the other labels had already signed their bands that you know were in that vein. So yeah. they didn't, uh, you know, they're like, eh, they're just another one of those bands. Even though we weren't screamo at the time, we were just straight up emo, yeah. you know, um, a little heavier, you know, than some of the other bands but so pretty much from there we um we left a militia group we signed with uh american recordings which is rick rubin's label um he came down to one of our we were selling out venues in san diego like ridiculous there was a place called the scene and uh luckily we knew the owner so she would fit in extra <laughs> bodies i think the the capacity was only like 700 but she'd fit like a thousand people in there nice so uh rick rubin came to one of our shows there and it was like you know the bearded wizard we're like holy <laughs> crap rick rubin's at our show uh we hadn't met him at the time we had just known the a&r guy and uh the head a&r guy and vice president dino and uh he came they signed us and uh pretty much from there we're like you know that's when we started getting on we were touring with Avenged sevenfold actually that was when we started touring with dashboard Avenged sevenfold uh my chemical romance and there was a couple other bands that we toured with um so that was that was in 2003 um probably then we recorded our album. We actually went in the studio in December of 2003 for our um, for our full for our full length album with American. Um, and American basically was a subsidiary of Island Def Jam at that time. Mm. So um, you know, Island Def Jam had a American. They had a bunch. They had like a country subsidiary. They had like a metal one but american at the time when we signed to them they had um slayer was still signing them system of a down yeah. johnny cash had just just passed away or actually he was still alive i think he's still put out all his um all his albums right there at the end were all done through american and the country album kind of like this weird little like two subsidiaries and they went out through island f jam so all the funding and all the promotion and basically all the big stuff went through Island Def Jam yeah. um, and the subsidiaries just had the bands and kind of presented them to Island Def Jam. So yeah, that's, I mean that, that pretty much we signed to them, recorded our album and, in, in uh, I got married actually December. It's funny. We, I got married to my wife December 6th of 2003 and then we went into the studio three days later. Nice. <laughs> I went on my honeymoon for three days and then we went right into the studio recording. So, um, we recorded that with Nick Raskulinix, who had just done the Foo Fighters album, the uh, One by One album. Yeah. <clears throat> and we're like, okay, this is great. <laughs> you know, we've got a Foo Fighters producer. And um, so we went in the studio, um, or actually we went in pre-production, you know, just writing, uh, writing songs. We wrote, like, you have to write so many songs, like 20 songs 
and you just dwindle it down. We send them, we do like just cheap get over four, you know, recordings, send them to Rick Rubin. He'd say, cut this one, you know, keep this one, do this, do it, cut this one, you know. So we just dwindled that down, went in the studio, recorded. And um, in the middle of that, actually, I got to back up because we, <laughs> I have to back up because we had an, added an extra player at that, uh, mm. before that too. We added John, our bass player. Um, he at the time was playing with, well, it was, wasn't as I dying yet. Uh, he was playing bass for them and man, I can't remember their name. They were a metal band and we played a show with them and he, John was 15. We were all in our twenties uh-huh. and John was 15 year old kid. And we're like, we saw him, we were playing and then they, they opened up for us. Um, life, man, I can't remember the name. We're like, dude, we need this kid to come play bass for us. Uh, so he, because right at the time, I was playing bass and singing still. Yeah. Um. So he came up. We played this little show. Uh, so this was back a couple years before this, before, and uh, he came up, and played one song with us, and uh, off the EP, and it was like explosion on stage i mean john was like going nuts and i had nothing attached to me so i could just go crazy with the microphone um so had john was with us so at that time so when we were recording for our full length for american it was me danny brandon john and uh roger and in the middle of that roger we had kind of a falling out with him as well and we fired our manager because we had our falling out with our manager at the same time. So uh, this started the downfall of Noise Ratchet. <laughs> um, we kicked Roger out in the middle of the recording, fired our manager. Basic, there was some, there was some things with our manager was ridiculous. We were playing a show in New Jersey, and he managed also Jason Newstead from Metallica mm-hmm. uh, that when he had broken off. So. We were playing this venue, and they had a large venue and a smaller venue. So our venue, uh, we had so many kids, and it was, I guess, we were so loud. The big venue Jason Newstead was playing in, um, our manager was there at that show, and he didn't even know we were playing at the same venue. And he was trying to get our show shut down because we were we had so many kids there, and it was so loud. Oh, man. And so that was like the breaking point where like, okay, our manager is trying to get our shut, a show shut down and he doesn't even know it's his band that he manages that he's trying to do that with. So when that happened, well, at the time, we didn't know he was the one trying to get it shut down. Yeah. Uh, we had found out later and we're like, uh, I don't think our, we should keep this manager if he doesn't know that his own band's playing at the venue next door, you know, there's something matter. So. Yeah. That was kind of the straw. Uh, that was right before the studio recording studio for that album, and in the middle, some other things happened, and we're like, uh, "No." So I want to know kind of what happened there because that album never came out, right? I yeah, mean, that's no. Yeah, so basically, in the middle of that again, we we got rid of Roger, got rid of our manager. Um, in the middle of that, um, Evan White, who was. Azalea Dines, guitar players at the time, um, came in and helped us uh, finish some of the playing on the album um, towards the end. And then uh, we also had Matt, who uh, Vasquez, who's the singer of Delta Spirit. Now he came in and helped me write some stuff uh, and helped a little bit on that album as well. Um, so we finished up that album, um, but pretty much. After we got done recording it, that was 2004, and I believe that was the same year that iTunes came out, mm. and all the digital downloading came out, and there was this huge like stir amongst all the record labels at the end of 2004, like every single one of them, and this huge shift. So in the middle of recording, we didn't know all this was going on because we're in the studio. We're in studio world, you know. Your mind's just like we're interviewing with some managers and we're recording. And that's all we're thinking about. And um, in the middle of it, uh, at the time, the president and vice president of Island Def Jam left, went to Warner Brothers, 
Warner Brothers had broken off and done their thing. Like all the labels, like all the heads of labels at that time were just like shifting because nobody knew what to do with digital downloading. And they were like, what the heck are we going to do? Because nobody's, you know, so there was just a huge stir in the whole in the whole music world at that time. Yeah. And um, nobody knew how to deal with it. So all these shifts happen. And Island Def Jam, we didn't know this, but they had pulled funding from our, from us recording, because uh, they were actually the ones mainly funding the album. Island Def Jam pulled funding, or they stopped funding for pretty much for everybody that was recording right then, uh, at least the subsidiaries that weren't, or if you weren't Slayer, I guess, yeah. you know, <laughs> or System of a Down. So they pulled our funding, and we. Um, Nick mixed our album as well. We wanted another person to mix it, uh, but they, uh, I, they had uh, Nick actually mix the album as well. And no offense against Nick, I love Nick's and Nick, and he did a great job. But when you've recorded the whole album, it's nice to have a fresh pair of ears come in and mix, yeah. uh, and have a different flavor too. Um, so, uh, but that that went well. We recorded that um but all after we got out of the studio went on tour and then we started finding out all this stuff we started finding out you know that there was no more funding to finish the album um nick actually didn't get paid um our assistant again the studio assistant didn't get paid a bunch of people didn't get paid for the album and actually it's funny nick still has all our recordings he never gave them to american he has them I had talked to him last year sometime and he was like, dude, I got all your albums. I, I have them all, or all the hard drives with all your recordings on them. So I'm never giving them back to those guys. And, you know, he was like, screw American, screw Island Def Jam. He was just like, screw the whole system because, uh, you know, everybody was just, nobody knew what to do at that time. People were getting kind of screwed left and right, not getting paid because, um, music was starting not to sell because because albums weren't selling yeah. nobody knew that digital downloading really what what to do with it yet so nobody's making money from it so um so that all kind of happened while we we're in the studio but we went on tour found all this stuff out we did um we had a manager maroon five's manager came in and he definitely helped us through that year for sure um he came in and we never signed anything with him. He just, it was a handshake deal and he would just help us get some shows. He helped us um, just kind of continue through the process and tried our best. Um, what's funny is Chad and Rory from Militia Group tried to get American to release five songs to do an EP through Militia Group uh, in 2004 because we, we hadn't released an album you know, the, the, our militia group EP came out like two years or a year and a half before we were recorded for Americans. So it had been like three years almost since we had released anything. So we were like, we're playing all these new songs, but nobody knew who, what they were, yeah. you know, nobody knew the songs. So we just, we started losing some fan base. Of course, during that time, we started losing our momentum. American wouldn't release. I mean, Chad and Rory were like basically like, Hey, we'll we'll pay for everything. We'll pay for you know. We'll pay for the songs. We'll pay to, you know, all the promotion. We'll pay for the CDs. We'll just slap American on there too, you know. And uh, they wouldn't go for it, and uh, that was really frustrating, actually. So 2004 was a really frustrating time because we'd re, you know, recorded this album, and uh, towards the middle end of 2004, it was clear that it was not coming out anytime soon, yeah. you know. We had a lot. We had some inner. Actually, at the time, we were doing pretty good inside the band. But of course, there was just that stuff puts pressure on everybody, you know. So we were on tour, but everybody was getting tired of just like you know playing shows. Yeah, we were touring with Amber Lynn at that time, uh, towards the middle end of two thousand four, and. Uh, they hadn't blown up yet so um, they were kind of popular they're more popular than we were yeah. um, but you know we were playing the shows in the Midwest and there was you know 10 people there you know for Anne Boleyn and uh, Noise Ratchet show <laughs> we thought everybody would be there because we were kind of both starting kind of up and coming bands yeah. 
and um, but they hadn't made it yet, and we were kind of, you know, dwindling. So pretty much towards the end of 2004, um, it was clear the album wasn't coming out. They weren't going to let go of it. American wasn't going to let go of it. And uh, we were just tired of touring and touring and touring and touring with nothing to show for it, you know, for two and a half years. And um, pretty much uh, at that time, American tried to leave uh, Island Def Jam in 2004 um, to leave, to go to Warner Brothers. Um, and basically Island said it was like a breach of contract. So there was a bunch of just crap that was going on around then that was not good. Yeah. <laughs> so end of 2004 comes and uh, pretty much me and Brandon and John uh, got together uh, without Danny, who was the original guitar player, me and him. But we got together and we were just like, you know what, this is not working. We need to, it's just, you know, we're losing money. We're poor. And, you know. and you're married? Are the other guys married I, at that point? Yeah, nobody, nobody was married at that time. It was just me. Um, I had been married for a year, you know, so my, I'm the whole first year of my marriage, I was on tour, yeah. you know, not making money right. <laughs> while my wife was at home working, uh, you know, living with my brother and his wife and, you know, making, you know, just doing whatever she could kind of hating me at the same time, you know? Yeah. Uh, so none of the other guys are married. I knew I was like, okay, this is, you know, I can't keep doing this. So end of 2004, we got together and we told Danny, we're like, Hey man, we all decided that we're done. We can't do this anymore. It's just killing us. Nothing's coming out. Nobody will release anything. Um, you know, what are we supposed to do? You know, we're yeah. just a band sitting without a, you know, we're on a record label, but without anything to show for it. So and we recorded, I mean, the album, literally just recording it was half a million dollars, you know? So, so it's like crazy. we have spent $500,000 recording an album that's just sitting on a shelf, yeah. you know, that and nothing can happen to it. And that's why they won't let anyone else release it because they want it yeah. for a write-off or whatever, which is exactly you know, crazy. There's a lot of just... uh you know, stuff that people don't see yeah. behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, so did you guys like have an official last show? Did you guys like announce we like did. we're breaking up? Yeah, we had at that time, uh, Facebook and everything wasn't around really. Yeah. I don't think it was just MySpace. I think at that time. Yeah. And, uh, so, so there, it, that was the other thing too. At that time we didn't have social media to, you know, network and, kind of uh, bands I hate I mean bands nowadays have it harder because there's so many avenues to promote yourself and there's so many bands trying to promote themselves yeah um, but at the same time there's so many opportunities to promote yourself we didn't have anything back then still we were still kind of in the dry days you know of like no social media was just starting to you know kind of you know myspace was huge of course but that was the only thing yeah and it wasn't like it is now you know it wasn't as social media as it is now it was like a page with our music on it you know and yeah i don't even think i think you could maybe send messages through it but right. i don't think there was like a news feed or anything like that so then to two, end of 2004 we did do we did a couple we did our last show in san diego at the scene we did two of them we did one at the scene in San Diego with a band called Counterfeit, and which was funny, it was their last show too. And they were a big secular band in in San Diego. Basically, they were um, we played our last show with them at the scene, and um, then we played. I believe our other last show was at the Roxy. Maybe hmm. I don't remember if we did it at the Roxy. We might have done one at Glasshouse as well. I can't remember. It's been a while yeah. and I'm getting old, but, uh, my brain doesn't remember all that. Um, so yeah, we did a couple last shows. No, it wasn't. I remember where our last, our last show was in LA. It was in Hollywood. It was, uh, man, I can't remember the name of it. It's the place where in school of rock where Jack, where they play Troubadour? their big show. 
No, it wasn't the Troubadour. It was was that the Troubadour that that one was shot? I don't, I don't know. It was shot at it. We didn't do it at the Troubadour. I know one of our we did play at the Troubadour before we broke up, but um, anyways, yeah. We so we did have one, one of our last shows was there in Hollywood. Then we had one in San Diego. Mm. Um, pretty much, we're done. You know, so that was end of two thousand four. Um, we had we didn't know what to do beyond that, but pretty much from right after that. Um, Brandon and John and myself and Evan, who was the guitar player from Azalea Dine, who he was just filling in for us. Mm. He was touring with us, buddy. I mean, I guess he was in the band pretty much, but we decided to do try to do something. So we started doing a band called The Life. And um, so we started writing for that. We broke up, started writing for The Life a couple months later. And we actually recorded... Um, Sean O'Donnell from Reeve Oliver, and you know he recorded a, a kind of an EP for us. So, or actually no, that wasn't Sean. That was um, Brett. I know Scott Scott McKay Gibson. He, that's right. Scott recorded that one. Sean did our pre-production recordings for our full-length album mm. for America. Uh, Scott, this guy Scott, who's a mutual friend, recorded our the life stuff in his basement hoping that we would shop it somewhere and, and he recorded it for free. So we um, recorded that. Room 5's manager was still managing us at the time. He's like, I'll stick with you and try to help you do something. So we recorded The Life. We recorded a bunch of songs for that and show those to our manager and he hated them. <laughs> <laughs> and we were, he was like, no, I don't like it. Sorry, guys. And then he basically like got rid He was like, you know, good luck. <laughs> so... Um, so we didn't have a manager, we didn't have nothing going on, uh, at that time. So it was just, we did some shows, we did a little bit of promotion for invisible children in the beginning, mm. um, to try to like get them going and like get us going and kind of mutually like try to promote each other. Cause they were starting to blow up at that time yeah. as well. And, um, just never, it just never worked out. It just seemed like at the end of 2005, this was all during, uh, 2005. Um, I know for me, I was just, I was just done. I was married. I had been married for two years. My wife was tired of me trying to do home and all that, but, um, I was working at this, uh, Lucadia pizzeria. Um, it is, it's funny. This is like, if you've ever been in a metal band or a like, punk band or anything from san diego you probably worked there when you were off tour <laughs> all the sla dying guys uh cory who was in niv no innocent victim uh, yeah. and he was in project 86 for a while yeah. when they signed atlantic he was the manager there so he would hire he would hire the guys when they were off tour so everybody would deliver pizzas for on the weekend or during the week and then they'd go and play shows on the weekends nice. and he was great and you could go on tour and then come back and he would hire you back. So nice. he was great. Corey Edelman. He's awesome. So pretty much uh, that's what I was doing. I was delivering pizzas, playing in the life. We were trying to make it happen. And I was, my wife was working it and uh, doing makeup for Mac. And it was just like, I was done. You know, I was just like, tired of chasing the dream of being a rock star yeah. you know everybody we had played with had blown up you know so literally we were like the and we must have been the lucky charm because like we play with pod they blew up play with switch <laughs> blew up play with amberlynn they blew up play with my chemical romance it's funny we were on tour with avenge sevenfold and my chemical romance we did two tours the first tour my chemical romance was opening and then we were uh second and then there was another band and then my Avenged Sevenfold. Then about four months later or five months later we toured this is in two thousand four with Avenged Sevenfold and Chemical Romance again and my Chemical Romance is co headlining with Avenged Sevenfold. So we we're like all these bands we toured with like blew up right after we toured with them. Yeah. And um you know, I'm just like I can't I can't keep doing this. It was it was killing me. It was killing my wife at the time. And, uh, so, uh, I just basically said, guys, I'm, uh, I'm done. Can't do this anymore. And, um, at that time, 
God was really kind of getting a hold of my heart again. Um, because I mean, when you're in the music scene, you're chasing, you have so many idols, you know, you're chasing so many idols. It's ridiculous. Even the Christian bands, you know, (laughs) uh, you know, uh, you know, burst everybody's bubble. 90% of them are not, (laughs) are not the people you think they are or, uh, but it, but it's not their fault. It's just the part of that industry and it's yeah. part of that culture. And, uh, I'm sure you know that from the week, you know, that week that you spent, <laughs> <laughs> but seeing it, you know, um, for sure. So at that time, God was kind of, this was the end of 2005. God was kind of getting a hold of my heart again. And, um, I had never done worship mm. ever besides, you know, with my dad in high school, but I'd never really written worship or um, or led worship or anything, <clears throat> and um, so I I uh, ran into an old friend right around that time, kind of hooked up. It was a guy who was a youth pastor in the early days of Noise Ratchet that we had played for, and uh, we had kind of kept in contact. And he was in San Diego, uh, college pastor at a church in San Diego, and we had lunch one day and I said, I don't know what to do. He's like, have you ever thought about doing worship? And I was like, no, not really. I'm just, you know, I was working, you know, went back to work with Taylor guitars and was, I'm just used to writing and playing rock, you know, rock music. And it was, uh, so he encouraged me that week to like really pray about it. He's like, how about you write? He had, he was a writer. So he, he was like, excuse me. He was like, I'll write, you know, a devotional every day this week if you write a song for, you know, or I'll write a devotional this week if you write a song. So I went home and uh, literally I wrote like six songs in a week, any worship songs. Hmm. And I look back on now, they're like cheesy as crap. <laughs> but it's, but at the time it was like, God was like doing this thing in my heart, you know, so um, pulling me back for sure. Um, so I started writing worship at that time and he's like, why don't you come lead worship for me at my college group? And I'm like, I didn't know any worship songs at that time really <laughs> at all. Cause I hadn't been to church, been on tour for four years, you know, so I hadn't been to church in a long time. Um, so I started listening to some Matt Redman, uh, our drummer, Brandon, um, noise Rogers drummer. We were, my wife and I were living with his mom and dad, who was my college pastor, actually, too. And uh, he turned me on to Matt Redman, so I started listening to some Matt Redman and stuff, and I started leading worship for the college group of this church in Escondido. And um, pretty much did that for about a year. And uh, my friend, uh, Dan, had uh, he had uh, had a couple liver transplants before he got his uh, second uh, liver was um, reject- rejecting again, and he started to get really, really sick. So he had to step out of him. Uh, and around the same time, we, my wife and I had our first child, uh, our first little girl, Ella Jane. And um, we, you know, my wife was pregnant. My friend Dan was really sick, so he had to step out. So we kind of both everybody took a step back from ministry. So I, I had led worship there for about a year. So this was 2006, all during 2006. So I stepped back and was working at Taylor Guitars for a couple months. And then uh, and my wife's family lived here where we live now, up in the high desert and Inland Empire. And uh, their church uh, was looking for a worship pastor. And... Um, Basically, my mother-in-law knew I was leading worship in San Diego, and they're like, why don't you guys move up here to the high desert, and it's cheaper to live, and, you know, and I was like, eh, I don't want to move up there, (laughs) Um, but God um, just kind of worked on our hearts and called us up here to full-time ministry, so that was 2007, the beginning of 2007, and I got hired on at that church, and um, that was a... uh, Calvary Chapel up here in the high desert. And um, so I was there on staff pretty much from 2007 uh, to the end of 2011. And I led, I was in ministry full time. Uh, in that time, we had our second 
little girl, uh, Audra London. And then um, in 2011, uh, I left that that church, and uh, a mutual friend was at the church that I'm at now, and or knew the pastor here, uh, and said, "Hey, they've been looking for a worship pastor here for like a year." And I was kind of going through some stuff there at the last church with just bad, um, bad leadership, <laughs> and um, just not good situations. So uh, God kind of just opened the door for me to come to where I'm at now at Redeemer. And so we came here at the literally um, like two weeks before Christmas on two, in 2011. And so I've been here since 2000, Christmas 2011. So four years, a little over four years now. I've been lead uh, leading worship here. And uh, now my duties are like uh, yours. Just you know, I do a graphic design, website upkeep, um, video, audio, visual, and worship. You know, yeah. kind of everything uh, that has to do with audio and visual stuff. So. And that's the end of the story. That's where, well, not the end, but that's where we're at now. Yeah, it's 2016. So it's so interesting to to see so many of those bands from that from that time who grew up, you know, the youth group in that mm-hmm. Southern California scene, and then uh, tried to get away from it, you know, and tried to yeah. to to be just a regular band, and then that have come back to work in churches. Uh, oh yeah, it just, it's funny. I, it's funny. I, I mean, I, it is literally like, I mean, um, Stephen from Amberlynn, I think he's leading worship now too. Yeah. Aaron from Under Oath. It was like, although I, I, I will say this, Aaron Gillespie was one of the most genuine dudes in all the Under Oath guys were actually, I would say when we would play with them, they were probably the, but Aaron was the nicest guy in the whole stinking world. I don't know if you've ever met him before, but he is just, he was just had a sweet spirit, really nice, kind. So I, I, you know, when he started doing worship, I was like, you know, that fit from, for him. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It is funny that a lot of guys, they kind of come back to, well, what am I going to do now? Oh, I'm going to lead worship, (laughs) you know? And I think it's been going on for a while too. I think there was a lot of '80s bands that the same thing happened. You know, they're right. all the '80s guitar players are now, you know, they're playing in churches. Well, now they're like they're the guy that's like, uh, can we get rid of this guy? Yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> <laughs> He's playing too many solos. <laughs> over top, you know, <laughs> the melody. Nice. So, but yeah, it is funny. So, I, so do you still do you? do any music outside the church? Do you do your own projects? Do you write worship? Anything? I, I was for years, um, writing a lot. I never released anything or recorded anything. Cause I just kind of stepped away from the whole music industry. I just like, I left it. So yeah. I was like not near anybody that was recording. I, I wasn't near any of the people that had access to the music scene or to recording. And I just kind of just was like, you know, I was like, I need to get away anyways. Um, so even though it was God kind of moving me out of it, I was at the same time, he was changing my heart. It was just like, I was done being around it. Yeah. It's and chasing after it. And, you know, so for when I first started, I, for years, yeah, I did. I, I wrote a lot. Um, I just uh, haven't done it in a long time. After having kids and being very busy with kids and ministry full time, you uh, your priorities definitely shift, yeah. you know. And uh, but I do, I do. Um, we don't play out. I mean, I don't play out any. I'll fill in, you know, at other churches or every once in a while. I'll play it at the churches. My wife will do something for a couple other churches in the area. Mm-hmm they have any special events or something. Um, but, um, but I don't, I, I write occasionally, I write a couple, wrote a couple songs for the church here, but it's not something that I'm like passionate that I have to write songs, you know, constantly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not, I, I, I wrote a lot of the stuff with noise ratchet, but we all kind of, we all kind of work together, but I've, I've never been that like weirdo singer songwriter guy. That's just not me. I've, you know, I wrote, but I wasn't like, lost in this like weird world of like um you know that guy is really weird you know (laughs) 
because uh, most of those guys that really write really well and are songwriters and singers, they're usually there's something there is something weird about them. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm weird, I guess, but I'm I've never been that guy. I've just I've wrote when you know when I kind of want to and just kind of like it, but it's not something I'm like have to do or passionate. I don't have like these songs going through my head constantly that I have to get out. I, I do have dreams. Occasionally I'll write a song in my dream, but I never, and I'll write it. I'll get up and hum it into my phone, but I never do anything with it. Nice. So. <laughs> so is there uh no chance that, uh, that, that album will ever, will ever be able to, to come <laughs> out? Is that um, something you even ever think about? You know, you know what, actually I, um, I, oh, I do think about it and I, I actually, I don't know if it's still up, but I actually, um, a couple years back, I put it, I think it's on Reverb Nation. Oh, okay. Reverb Nation, is that what it is? Yeah. I think it might be on there, actually. I think some of the songs may be on there. Mm. Um, I just was like in defiance. I was like, I don't care. I'm just going to put this up and release it. And that was like, actually, it was probably long. It was probably like five or six years ago I put that up on there. And, uh, and just like, you know, Hey, if anybody knows, remembers noise ratchet wants to hear the album that was unreleased. So you probably can check it, check it out on reverb nation. I think it is on there somewhere. Nice. Um, it's not, you know, it's not mastered. It's just kind of a quick mix. I know that they, they didn't spend a lot of time on mixing cause all the funds were running out. So yeah. the mixed job is not the best and the mastering is not mastered at all. So, so it doesn't sound uh, you know, as good as it could probably. Right. Um, uh, but yeah, I, you know, I think back on those days and I, I enjoyed, I think the most thing, I, the thing I enjoyed most actually, a couple of the things I enjoyed most touring was fun when you get to just spend time seeing, you know, I always toured North America. We didn't really go outside of North America, just Canada and in the States, but uh, just seeing it, you know, seeing the places, seeing the mountains, seeing the, you know, uh, meeting new people, you know, meeting people and just kind of living life. I mean, that was, that's, that's fun for sure. I don't miss the whole, I don't miss trying to be famous or yeah. the whole industry at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not, it's just not anything I miss at all. It's, it's too, um, it's just sickening, I guess, to me now, you know, yeah. just to see, uh, look back on it. It's like my wife asked me every once in a while if I desire that or at all. Because I know the guys, Brandon and John, uh, went on with Matt to do Delta Spirit, and they've been pretty successful. Mm -hmm. And, she, you know, when they were on Letterman, I think a couple times, or Conan a couple times, and we watched them, and she's like, you ever want to do that again? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Like, I don't just don't, I just don't feel like chasing those dreams. And I know that one day a lot of these guys are going to wake up and they are, you know, and they're in their thirties and forties and they're going, uh, what do I do with my life? Yeah. <laughs> like, even if they do make it, you know, you're still, there's only a couple that have continued or been able to continue. Um, the Switchfoot guys have been successful at continuing, uh, but they've, had to tour their butts off to yeah. stay where they are, you know, and to be able to be able to afford to keep doing it as well. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't look back and desire any of that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> sure. At all. Uh, I just want to be a dad, be a good husband, be a good father and just, uh, enjoy what God's given me today, you know, enjoy, um, what I have now and just, you know, plan for the future, actually think about the future instead of just living in the moment. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that's it, man. Very cool. Well, I, I appreciate you, uh, sharing your whole story and all the, uh, details about the band and yeah. how you got to where you're at now. Um, sure. I kind of just do like some rapid fire questions at the end that okay. really are useless but they're fun. Okay. fun. <laughs> First part's blank or blank, baseball or football. Oh man, uh, neither soccer. <laughs> soccer. All right. <laughs> or hockey. I'll say hockey. hockey. Actually, right. I'm a really big hockey fan right now. So nice. Uh, East coast or West coast? Uh, East coast. I gotta say, East coast. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Chick-fil-A or In-N-Out? Uh, I'm a Chick-fil-A guy. Nice. Uh, Android or iPhone? I'm an iPhone guy. Justin Bieber or Justin Timberlake? Um, how about a blend of both, maybe? <laughs> yeah, I like them both a little bit, nice. you know? <laughs> uh, next part's favorite blank, favorite band or artist? Favorite band or artist? Um, man, this is a hard one. Um, well, I have to... I have to give it out to Jimmy World just because, uh, I, although I don't listen to them constantly anymore, yeah. uh, they were the most influential band in I think every a uh, lot of the band's lives. But I think that the talent in that band is amazing. The songwriting is amazing, and uh, I would say them and the Foo Fighters. <laughs> I'll, I'll, nice. Those two bands. Uh, favorite book. Favorite book. Uh, I don't read a lot, honestly. Um, I'll just say the Bible just because I don't read too many books outside of that. I listen to stuff instead of reading. Nice. <laughs> uh, favorite city? Favorite city. Um, man, that's another hard one uh, because I am I love the East Coast. Um, I have to say Charleston, South Carolina, just the not because of the culture there, but just because it's a cool city to go to and the histo- history that's there and stuff. Nice. Uh, that or Nashville, probably. <laughs> cool. Uh, favorite food? Favorite food is barbecue. Just anything with barbecue sauce on it, some good ribs or pulled pork sandwich or something. Nice. Uh, favorite movie? Favorite movie has always been The Last of the Mohicans. That's always been my favorite movie. All right. Uh, last parts fill in the blank. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a blank. When I was a kid, I probably wanted to be a rock star. (laughs) If I had more time, I would blank. If I had more time, if I had more time, I would travel probably more. Yeah. Yeah. If money didn't matter, I would blank. I would probably travel with my family. Nice. Uh, people think I'm weird because I blank. Oh, man, people, every all the guys make fun of me around here because I'm the weirdo <laughs> on staff. I'm not even that weird, but um, probably people think I'm weird because I open up and share way too easily, maybe. Nice. Uh, well, I, I appreciate that. Last ones. If I wasn't on this dumb podcast, I'd be blank. If I wasn't on this dumb bod- podcast, I would be making backing traps and tracks and loops for the Sunday. <laughs> nice. Well, I, I appreciate your time, Joel, and thanks for sharing your story. And Yeah, man, it's my pleasure, as they would say at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for listening. Again, all the show notes are at 365conversations.com slash episode 30. That's 365conversations.com slash episode 30. And thanks so much to Joel for sharing your story and uh, taking the time to hang out with me. I really appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for listening, and I'll be back tomorrow.